First Timothy chapter 3. Is that what I wrote up there, Brother Josh? Hebrews 13. Uh, I don't know why I had that down there. We're going to get to Hebrews 13, but I think I, uh, I think I jumped ahead in my notes. That's why I started. I didn't think that I had written 1 Timothy 13, or 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, but that is where I would like you to go. 1 Timothy chapter 3. All right, we talked last week. Actually, before we, before we even get into what we talked about last week, we need to step back and review our, um, our acronym for the Baptist Distinctives. And so, we'll say them together. All right, what are they? Start with B. Biblical authority. The Bible is the final authority. A. Autonomy. Every local church has the ability to decide what it wants to do in that local church without some head over the top of that church. P. Priesthood of the believer. We don't have to go through a priest. We can go directly to God ourselves, right? T. Two ordinances. And what are the two ordinances? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Very good. Uh, I. Individual soul liberty. Uh, S. Saved church membership. Very good. And then I mentioned our T last week, which is? Two offices, very good. And we talked about the first one last week, which was? Deacons, Deacons. very good. Deacons. And so I, uh, I mentioned this last week as well, that, that probably within this year, we're going to be ordaining some deacons in our church. And so I took a little bit longer on that than I normally would um, or, or than, than I had in the past. But um, there's still plenty more that we could talk about with that. But for, just for the sake of time, we spent one week on it and went over a lot of different qualifications. And I'm going to piggyback off of that a little bit because a lot of the qualifications for a pastor are the same um, as some of the qualifications for the deacons. Um, but uh, if, you didn't, if you didn't watch that last week or listen to that last week, I'd, I'd encourage you to go back and just because some of this is going to overlap a little bit, I'd encourage you to go back and watch that or listen to that service and uh, give you some good ideas on the things that we talked about last week. But we're going to move into the second part of that, the second office that the Bible gives us uh, in addition to deacons, and that is pastors. So uh, having said that then, what is the description of the pastor? Well, he's called a pastor, he's called a bishop, he's called an elder. Now obviously, you know, uh, you call me Pastor Boots, and that's the way that we do it in most of our churches, but I suppose you could say Elder Boots or Bishop Boots, it would be the same thing, they're all interchangeable. Um, I'm not going to come in next week and wear a, wear a badge that says Bishop Boots on it, I, I'll tell you that much, but uh, all of those are the same, we see that in 1 Peter chapter 5, but we see in Acts chapter 20, you can keep your finger there in 1 Timothy 3, and if you want to go to Acts chapter 20, you can, we're going to spend most of our time, uh, or, or a good bit of our time there in 1 Timothy chapter 3, but in Acts chapter 20 verse 17, this is obviously uh, Paul, and he, he, and from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. That would mean the position of elder, in addition to the position of pastor, is not a biblical office. And, and there's, a, there's a lot of churches that have elders in their church. They have elder rules in their church. And uh, the term elder is, is synonymous with the term pastor. It's synonymous with the term bishop. So those are not, those are not extra offices that God has ordained as Baptists. And this is where we, we are calling this a Baptist distinctive. We believe in two. We believe in deacons and we believe in pastors. If you want to call him an elder, call him an elder. If you want to call him a bishop, call him a bishop. But a pastor, a bishop, and an elder are the same thing. 
Pastors are given to churches as a gift to bring members into spiritual maturity. And we find that in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 16. If you want to write that down and go back and look at it later, I'm not going to read it tonight. But I, I am going to quote fairly extensively from a book that was written by a guy, a pastor by the name of Charles Jefferson. Uh, he wrote a book called The Minister as Shepherd. Now, he died in 1937, so that'll tell you how old the book is. I think he wrote the book uh, in the early 1900s, uh, but he said this, we lose something by confining the Anglo-Saxon word shepherd to the fields and shutting up the Latin word pastor in the church. We know with our intellect that the two words are synonymous, but we forget it often with our hearts. It would help us to say occasionally, the Lord is my pastor. It would lift up the word pastor to higher dignity and pour into it a more heavenly meaning. It would chasten and strengthen every minister of Christ if now and then he would say to himself, I am a shepherd. My work is the herding and feeding of sheep. So just a, a different way of thinking about it, but that's exactly what that word pastor means. It means shepherd. And of course, then, the, you know, we don't call the Lord our pastor, but essentially that's what he is. He is our shepherd. He is there to guide us, to direct us, to help us grow, to, to, to help us mature. That's, that's what he does for us, and, and essentially, I'm not saying that a pastor is the same uh, as Jesus Christ, but that's the term that God gives us for a pastor is a shepherd. So then, what are the qualifications of a pastor? We see it very plainly laid out there in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and you'll notice that a lot of these qualifications are the same as the deacons, but there's a lot of them, a lot of things that are added to that. Uh, and so, uh, again, it's not that a pastor is better than a deacon, but, but always the deacons are lay ministers, if you will. And I don't even know if calling them ministers is the right word, but uh, they're not in that full-time position of a pastor leading a church. They are there as the servants of the church to help the pastor in fulfilling the vision and the mission of the church, which is to uh, win souls, to disciple them, and help them grow and be prepared for the coming of Jesus Christ. So, as we read this... Um, you'll probably see a lot of these. In, in fact, verse 8 through 13 of 1 Timothy is what we kind of focused on last week with the um, uh, qualifications of a deacon. But it says in verse number 8, likewise must the deacons. And, it, and, it, and so when you say likewise, it means it's got to be likening it to something else. Well, what that something else is, is the qualifications of a pastor. So you'll see a lot of these that overlap, but we're going to talk about the ones tonight that we didn't see last week with the deacons. So uh, there, is, there is eight or ten of them that we're not going to look at because we looked at them last week, and obviously then they'd be the same. But let's read through this passage first of all before we get into talking about these individually because I think it helps us. But it says this in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 1. This is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not, uh, if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil." Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So there's a lot of qualifications in order to be a pastor, right? Uh, and a lot of those, hopefully, you recognize from looking at them last week, because some of them do overlap with the deacons. But let's look at a few of these. Uh, number one is desire. 
And we see that this is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop. That is that he should strongly want to do the work of the ministry. I hear people say often, well, you know, God, uh, I felt God calling me into the ministry, but I fought it and fought it and fought it, and finally God broke me down to the point where I said, all right, if that's what you want me to do, then I'll do it. Well, I mean, I'm not saying that, that, that somebody couldn't be in that position that God calls, but you ought to have a desire. That's, that's what we're trying to teach our young people, right? Uh, God may call them into the ministry. He may not, but we want them to have the desire to be called, right? There's, there's, uh, there's a lot of people who are not in full-time service who would love to have been in full-time service. And when I say that, I'm saying, you know, the position of a pastor or a missionary or an evangelist or something like that, that God just did not call, but they had that desire. Now, sometimes people have such a strong desire that they step outside of God's will and become a pastor when they never should have. But that desire should be there. And if that desire to be a pastor is not there, then that's the, that, that really is the first disqualification. But the second thing I think is that he ought to know how to work. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. It's, a, it's work being a pastor. And I know, uh, uh, well, for the hour and a half or so on Sunday that I, that I do actually work, um, it's tough, I'm telling you. No, but, but honestly, that's, you know, that's the idea that a lot of people have sometimes. Well, you don't do anything. You only work an hour and a half on Sundays. That's it, right? And sometimes that may be the way that it comes across, but there's a whole lot of things that, that, that go on in the background that, that are necessary, that are not necessarily seen by everybody. But a pastor ought to know how to work. He desireth a good work, the Bible says. Well, we continue on. Blameless. Husband of one wife. Those, are, those also overlap. But vigilant. Vigilant is another one. That is, he is alert. He's watchful. He's not easily fooled. He's not, he's not gullible. He, he's discerning what the spiritual and social trends are uh, and the religious trends. He's on guard for that spiritual attack. I think that's so necessary, especially if a pastor is going to do the work of protecting the flock, right? Uh, could you imagine a shepherd that's just laying around in the field and, you know, uh, you know, making little whistles out of pieces of grass and not paying attention to anything else that's going on around him. And a wolf is coming in and getting ready to attack the sheep and he's just not paying attention at all. And, oh, we lost another one. Oh, well, <laughs> I guess next time I'll try to be a little bit more awake and see what happens. No, he ought to be, he ought to be vigilant. Charles Jefferson, again, I told you I'm going to quote extensively from, from his book. I think probably five or six quotes I have in here, but he's good in the way that he says this. Many a minister fails as a pastor because he is not vigilant. He allows his church to be torn to pieces because he's half asleep. He took it for granted that there were no wolves, no birds of prey, no robbers, and while he was drowsing, the enemy arrived. False ideas, destructive interpretations, demoralizing teachings came into his parish, and he never knew it. He was interested, perhaps, in literary research. He was absorbed in the discussion contained in the last theological quarterly and did not know what his young people were reading or what strange ideas had been lodged in the heads of a group of his leading members. There are errors which are as fierce as wolves and pitiless as hyenas. They tear faith and hope and love to pieces and leave churches once prosperous, mangled and half dead. And I think that's a great explanation of a majority of our churches today, because half of those pastors don't even know what they believe, let alone know that this is an error that's trying to come into the church, and they're not teaching or preaching anything. So what is there to protect the flock from, right? But a pastor ought to be vigilant. Uh, and then it continues on, sober. We saw that one last week. But then the next one that we didn't see is of good behavior. <clears throat> and I think that means he ought to be mannerly. He ought to be gentlemanly. 
neat in his appearance, in the way that he conducts himself around other people. That ought to be, uh, you know, there ought to be something different about the pastor, right? Um, I, I, there's, there is a desire, I think, to try to fit in um, and be one of the guys and just, you know, whatever else. And, and that's a, it's a tough balance because if I'm just one of the guys, then that respect that ought to be there, I, I can't just tell you, you respect me, Right? I have to earn that respect. I have to, I have to deserve that respect, and that means that, that I'm going to have to act differently. Another one <clears throat> that comes in that we didn't have last week is hospitable. And, and I think that means he, he needs to know how to treat and care for people, right? There, there's a lot of pastors who just, uh, I guess maybe we could say it like this. Um, a, a doctor could know everything there is to know about being a doctor and just have horrible bedside manner, Right? And a doctor with horrible bedside manner, whether he knows what he's doing or not, most of the time you're going to say he's not a very good doctor, right? He might know exactly what you need. He might give you the, the right treatment. He might give you the right medicine, and you might get well under his care. But if he's terrible at his bedside manner, you're not going to think he's a very good doctor, right? And I think the same thing uh, when I'm talking about hospitable, not hospital, hospitable, um, know how to treat and care for people. The next thing is that he's apt to teach, which means a, a, a good teacher, skilled at public teaching, personal mentoring, um, good at, at showing, explaining, and helping people to understand what the Bible is saying. Not that you can't do that thing for yourself, but why do we have church if there's no need for a pastor to help you understand what the Bible is saying here or there or give you some of that, that spiritual charge that you need? And um, I, you know, I'm not saying that I'm a great speaker or anything like that. I, I really don't think that I am. It's the hardest thing for me to do is to go back and, and listen to some of my own messages or watch some of my own sermons. Uh, it's, I rarely do it other than when I say, you know what, I need to see what I'm, what I'm doing that, that's annoying or what I'm saying that is uh, uh, just getting under people's skin or something like that. So I'll go back and, and do it every once in a while. But I've, I've been under people who were just boring to listen to, and it makes it very, very hard to, to try to follow along with what's going on. Um, but I, I think that's one of the qualifications that God gives a pastor, if he's called him, is the ability to expound the Word of God and, and rightly divide the Word of truth and then help us to be able to understand it and digest it, right? Um, that's, that's one of the qualifications for a pastor. <clears throat> Verse 3. Not given to wine. That's one that we saw last week. But then another one is no striker. And I, and I think that means not violent. I've known pastors who are ready to fight at the drop of a hat. I was talking to, to a, a guy not even all that long ago, and he said um, that uh, uh, there was a, kind of an argument in their church, and it was, it was kind of the pastor and a few people against some of the other people who didn't like what was going on and everything else. And the pastor literally rolled up his sleeve and said, you want to fight? <laughs> That's, that's uh, in the church he said that. I mean, this wasn't just at somebody's house. Uh, he was ready to, to, to go to blows, and that's, that's exactly what that's talking about. Uh, no striker means you're not violent. It doesn't mean that you can't defend yourself. It doesn't mean that you can't uh, defend the honor of your family or something like that, if that's what it comes down to, but you're not looking for a fight. You know, you're not the one initiating it. You're not the one instigating that, uh, and I think that's what that means. Not greedy, a filthy lucre. Obviously, we talked about that least last week as well uh, with the office of a deacon. But that means you're not doing it for the money, right? And, and there's, a lot of, there's a lot of these guys out there that are doing it for the money. Um, I've seen, uh, you know, <clears throat> and I think the televangelists are the ones that really stick out the most with this. But, <clears throat> you know, you send me $3,000 and God's going to bless you, you know. 
uh, oh, oh man, I wish I could think of this guy's name. He's, uh, he's one, of the, one of these televangelists, real, real piercing eyes. You know who I'm talking about? What's his name? I know Kevin knows his name, but I can't think of it. If you think of it, let me know. But, but I saw him, Kenneth Copeland, Kenneth Copeland very good. And uh, he, I mean, and, and the, the audacity that these guys have when they're asking for money, it just blows my mind. He said, we've already got a private jet. We use that to get back and forth, and it's, it's, it's God's jet. We use that in his ministry, and we use that to get back and forth across the country. But honestly, I believe God is telling you right now that our jet needs to be a little bit bigger so we can bring more people across the country with us. And God's telling you right now to give more money so that we can buy a bigger jet. And I'm thinking, how in the world can you get up with a straight face and, and beg people to give you money? And then people are like, yeah, yeah, you know what, here, take some more money for a bigger jet, you know? But, but these guys are in it for the money, and that is not, that's not what a pastor ought to be doing. And uh, that's one of the qualifications for the pastor, not, a, not greedy, a filthy lucre, but patient, and that's another uh, qualification. And again, patience is, is uh, a virtue, as we've heard many, many times, but that uh, is something that, that, that if you're expecting to have, uh, you know, start a church one day and have a church of 500 people the next uh, and, and when that doesn't happen, you're rushing and, you know, just, just all over the place, you know, pulling your hair out, trying to make it happen. Listen, you have to be patient and you have to be patient with people. My father-in-law used to say, I, I don't think he said it all the time, but he, he said before, at, at least a couple times, the ministry would be great if it wasn't for people. And, uh, obviously that's kind of an ironic statement because that's what the ministry is, but they're people. And if I'm not patient with the people that God's given us, and I expect, why are they not growing? Why are they not moving? Why are they not doing this? Why are they not doing that? I wouldn't be in this very long, uh, because people grow very, very slowly uh, for the most part. But, but it's, that's, that's one of the qualifications for a pastor is to be patient. And then kind of right along with the idea of no striker is not a brawler. And, and uh, I think that, you know, it's not quarrelsome or argumentative. A striker means you're not ready to, to, to knock somebody out at the drop of a hat. But uh, not a brawler means that you're not quarrelsome, not argumentative. Uh, some pastors are always looking to get into an argument, right? I, I am not a confrontational person. I don't like to argue. Uh, I don't like to get into arguments. But a, a pastor should be looking to diffuse that situation, not looking to get into it. And you know, honestly, I find, I find a lot of times that, that a lot of the pastors that, that come up with strange ideas or strange doctrines seems like are the ones that are, are the, are the uh, most looking to get into an argument. And I think it's, it's because maybe they know that their idea is kind of a fringe idea and, you know, they know that people are going to say things against it. I don't know exactly what that is, but it seems like that's the way that it happens a lot of times. But a pastor ought not to be a brawler. You ought not, I mean, uh, you ought not to be getting in arguments you know, not that you don't stand up for what you believe in. I'm not saying that because there is a time when you have to stand up for what you believe. Um, but, but not argumentative, not quarrelsome, not looking to get into one of those arguments. And then we see this as well. And we kind of saw this, uh, which verse 4 and 5 very much have to do with uh, what we talked about last week with the deacons. But ruleth his own house well, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? It's like a, that's a rhetorical question, really right? It's not asking for an answer. It's saying, if you can't even rule your own house, how can you rule the house of God, right? And, and I think, I mean, that, that puts a lot of pressure on the pastor's kids because they know that, well, if, if I mess up, dad's ministry is done, right? And, and, uh, and to a certain extent, that's, I mean, I, I suppose that that's the way that it is, but 
Um, I don't expect my kids or any pastor's kids to be perfect. They're going to make mistakes. They're, they're, they're going to be kids. They're going to have problems from time to time. But how are you handling those problems? How are you dealing with those problems? Are you dealing with those problems? Um, because again, if you can't rule your own house, then how can you, how can you take care of the church of God? Then you also see a, not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. And I think that simply means that he's a mature Christian. He's not a brand new Christian. You don't get saved on Friday and become a pastor on Sunday, right? Um, not that you can't go tell everybody that you know about Jesus Christ. I mean, look, that's exactly what Nitin did when he got saved, right? He got saved, and the next thing you know, he was on these Zoom calls, and all he's talking to all of his family. He wasn't preaching to them. He was sharing them the gospel, right? sharing the gospel with them. And uh, it took several years for him to get to the point. And honestly, uh, had he not been, you know, uh, the time constraint to get back to India because of the job and everything else, we probably would have kept him around here a little bit longer to continue training him. Um, but obviously, as a Christian, he grew very, very fast because he had that desire and he had a lot of that Christian background and everything already anyway. Um, and when he got saved and God opened his eyes up to all of those things, it was, it was very easy for him to say, Wow, now all of this that I've learned my whole life that I had the wrong idea of makes sense. And, uh, of course, he, he applied himself very, very much and was taking classes and doing all kinds of different things. But uh, a pastor ought not to be a new Christian. It's hard, it's hard enough just uh, being a, a pastor when you have been a Christian for a long time or when you have grown up in it and everything else, let alone to be trying to lead people spiritually when you don't even know the direction you're going yourself. So a mature Christian, not a novice or a new Christian. And then the last one we see there in verse number seven, moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and, and the snare of the devil. And I think that just means that he has a good reputation in the community. Um, there are a lot of businessmen who, who go to church, who, as we talked about this somewhat last week with the deacons, who don't have a good reputation in the community. They've ripped so many people off in their business and they've, they've done so much damage in that way, that when somebody finds out what you're a pastor and you still and you treat people that way, right? You ought to have a good reputation outside of the church as well. And again, sometimes you have a bad reputation because you stand up for the truth and they don't like what you're saying, and, and that's different. Uh, it doesn't mean that you have to compromise for the sake of having that good reputation, but, but at the very least, people ought to be able to say that man is honest, that man at least stands up for what he believes in, that man at least treats people right, that man at least and nothing bad that they can say uh, about the person who, who they're talking about. So a good reputation in the community. Which brings us then to the role of the pastor. And I don't want to take too much longer on this. I preached a message on this not all that long ago, uh, maybe beginning of December or end of, end of uh, November, somewhere around there, I think. But turn over to Hebrews chapter 13. This is where I jumped ahead of myself a little bit in the notes there on the PowerPoint. But the role of the pastor the first job that the pastor has, and I, and I say a job because he says he desireth a good work. It's not just a position to be filled. It's a job to be done. It's, it's, it takes work. But the role of the pastor or the job of the pastor is, first of all, to lead the church. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse number 7. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Now, what he's saying there is, whose faith follow, considering the end of the conver their conversation. That word conversation is talking about our lifestyle, right? You look at, at the way he lives his life, and you ought to follow that person as he follows Christ. Verse 17, 
Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. And I've mentioned this many times before, but I'm going to give an account to God for the direction that this church goes in. And if I'm too weak to lead the church and the church goes in a direction that, that is weakening the church, then I'm the one that's going to have to answer to God for that. Right now, you might answer to God for the way that you, uh, for your role in that. If you were one of the ones that's really pushing for the weakening of the church, um, but the Bible doesn't hold the church people responsible for the direction that the church goes in. He holds the pastor responsible for that. And again, he, it's it's the responsibility then of those who are in the church to follow that leadership and to obey them that have the rule over you. And I know that sounds like a, a dictator up here saying, "You obey me." But I'm not the one that said it. God's the one that said that, right? Obey them to have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls. I know a lot of strong men who will stand on the promise of Ephesians chapter 5 and chapter 6 that my wife is going to follow me. I'm the leader in my home. She better submit to me who won't submit to their pastor when the Bible very clearly says that that's what they ought to be doing. For they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief. But that's unprofitable. It's unprofitable for you when you don't do that, is what he's saying. But how great for me to be able to stand before God and say, this is the direction that we went in with our church. These people followed, they submitted, and God blessed it. That's, that's exactly what he's talking about. Because I want to be able to give an account with joy and not with grief. I want to be able to say, yes, we went in the direction you wanted us to go, not in the opposite direction, right? So how does the pastor lead the church? Well, first of all, he has to lead by example. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to look at a couple different verses there in 1 Peter chapter 5. But the pastor ought to lead by example, and I think that's first and foremost, right? 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse number 3 says this, Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. Now, what is he talking about? Well, you go back and, and look at verse number two, which we're going to read in just a second, and, and these two kind of go hand in hand with each other. But I ought to be leading the church by example. I can't say, do as I say, not as I do. This is what the Bible says, you better do it. Now, I'm going to live my life how I want to live it. Don't watch what I'm doing at home. Don't watch what I'm doing when I'm at church. Don't watch what I'm doing out in the community. You do what I say, not what I do. It's, that's, that's not, it's not going to work to lead that way, Right? And so, and I've said this many times before as well, if I want you to jump a foot, I've got to jump three feet, right? If I'm going to get up and preach against movies with uh, language and movies with, you know, uh, for lack of a better term, pornography in it, I mean, people don't call it that anymore, but that's what it is, right? If I'm going to get up and preach against those things, then I better not be doing those things in my own home. I better have a standard set very high in my own home. And we do. We, we try as much as we can, you know. Uh, and, and oh, well, that means you can't watch any movies. Exactly. I couldn't tell you any of the actors other than unless they were in some, you know, some big news story or something like that that came out because of something else that they did. And it's not, it's not a bragging thing. It's a thing that I'm saying. I'm, I'm telling you to do this. But if, if all I'm doing is telling you to do it and I go home and live it, number one, I've got a family. That's watching me. They hear everything that I say here. And if they go home and they see me living a completely different lifestyle, the first thing they're going to say is, well, dad's a hypocrite. Doesn't mean anything. You can say anything you want to in church. 
right? You can, you can pretend that you're living your life any way that you want to in church, but you better be living it at home too. And, I, and so I have a responsibility to lead the flock of God, but I better be leading by example. Charles Jefferson said this, a shepherd cannot shine. He cannot cut a figure. His work must be done in obscurity. The things which he does do, uh, the things which he does do not make interesting copy. His work calls for continuous self-effacement. It's a form of service which eats up a man's life. It makes a man old before his time. Every good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. If a man is dependent on the applause of the crowd, he ought never to enter the ministry. And again, what a, what a great statement. That's why I use so many of the statements that he, that, he's, that he made in that book, because it's great statements. But again, does that limit what I'm, what I'm allowed to do? Some things that may not even necessarily be sinful, but because I'm, I've got to hold a standard and because I've got to be the example, there's a lot of things that I can't do that, that I probably could if I wanted to. But I don't, because, I, I don't I, because of how it's going to be perceived and because of how people who are watching my life and what I do are going to follow, right? And, and what you allow in just a little bit, the people are going to do in excess, right? So if I say, well, oh, man, you've got to see this movie. It was, it was funny. There's a couple parts in there that you've got to kind of watch. Uh, and, and really, you know, it's, they're not great, but, you know, but the movie itself, it was so funny. Well, guess what everybody's going to do? Number one, everybody's going to go watch that movie. They're going to see, and, and now they're going to be looking for the parts that were bad in it because now I mentioned that there was a couple parts that were not great. So now I wonder what parts he was talking about that were not great, right? But then they're going to say, well, the pastor watched this, so nothing wrong with that. I mean, yeah, the one that he was talking about only had two cuss words in it. This one has eight, but it's only eight, right? And that's what happens. And if I'm not leading by example, what you, what you allow the people are going to do in excess, and it's the same thing with my family. What I, what I allow in just small amounts, my kids are probably going to do in excess later on. So I have to lead by example, but also we see this in, in 1 Peter 5, verse number 2, that I have to lead by taking oversight. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. And again, this is speaking directly to pastors, right? My job is to feed the flock, and I have to take the oversight. What does he say? Not by constraint, but willingly. That means somebody should not have to force me to lead. Somebody should not have to force me to take the oversight of the church. I ought to do it willingly, not by constraint. That's what he's saying. The pastor has to exercise his leadership. That's the idea that's found in the title of bishop. The title bishop means overseer. That's my job. It's my responsibility. The pastor is the overseer and the inspector of all the ministries and all the workers and, and, and everything, that go, everything that involves the work of the church. If I'm not taking oversight of it and making sure that it's going in the right direction, then I'm not doing my job. I'm not following what I've been commanded to do, but that's what leadership is. That's administration. That's Casting the vision, it's coming up with the plans, it's figuring out ways that we can get more people into church, it's figuring out ways that we can get the gospel out to more people, uh, and, and trying to help our church to grow numerically and spiritually, that falls on me. And if I'm just waiting for something to happen and hoping that somebody will come along and help out with that, then I'm failing in my responsibility. I have to take the oversight. It, 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 no pastor can lead just because he's the pastor right? He has to take charge. And if he doesn't, somebody else is going to take the lead. 
We see that happen so often in families, right? I've said that many, many times. It's a husband's responsibility to lead the home. And if the husband doesn't lead his home, then the wife, especially if she's got any kind of type A personality, is going to step in and take that lead role. And that's not the way that God designed it. It's the same thing that's true in a church, right? Why, I, I, I talked about this last week. Why is it that in, in, in a lot of churches that you see, the deacons just run the entire church? Because the pastor is not willing to step up and take the oversight. And if he didn't take the lead, then there's always somebody else who'll say, well, we'll lead if you won't, right? But that's not the way God designed it. That God designed for the pastor to take the oversight. Strong leadership results in a strong church. Weak leadership results in a weak church. And when you have weak leadership, what you see happening so often is the same thing that we've always talked about. The, the music gets weakened, and then the standards get weakened, and then everything else just falls right behind it, and the whole church is weakened because there's no strong leadership. Sometimes a pastor that leads authoritatively is accused of dictatorship, and, and I suppose that is something that, that needs to be, uh, the, the pastor has to be careful not to allow that to happen. Um, I've seen many churches where they, where they did have a pastor who was a dictator, but uh, most, you know, most supervisors or foremen on a job, um, they're not looked at as being dictators if they take that leadership role and they tell their guys what to do and what not to do and everything else, right? Uh, that's looked at as being a good supervisor. And, uh, and, and I think the same thing with a pastor who's leading in a biblical manner should be considered in, in that same thing, Right? Not a dictator, just because you're making sure that things are done right. But the job of the pastor is to shepherd the flock. And I kind of mentioned it already, but watch for enemies. Watch for, for wrong doctrine. Watch for um, attack. Defend the sheep. Heal the sick and wounded sheep. Comfort the sick and wounded sheep. Help them to get through those things. You know, free the trap sheep. Love the sheep. And, uh, you know, that, that means many times sharing in life events, um, and, and earning that trust, and it's something that I try to do. I, I'm not the, I, you know, I, I'm not saying that I'm the greatest at it, but um, most everybody that spent time in the hospital, I've been there with you. Um, I, I, my, when my mom was sick, and uh, she had cancer, and was going in for, Brian and I uh, surprised her. She didn't know we were coming up there, but we, we got up to the hospital on the day that she was going in for surgery, and we showed up at the entrance when, when my dad dropped her off, and she was just really shocked to see us. But you know who else was there? Their pastor. And he sat there for basically the entire time that she was in surgery. And I think she was in surgery for three or four hours. And then it was another hour or two after that before the doctor came out to say, hey, this is how everything went. He sat there the entire time. And he was doing some work and things like that there in the, in the waiting room. But he was there for prob probably five or six hours. And that, that meant a lot to me. And I know it meant a lot to them because he was there for them. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just something that, you know, this is not, if it was just a job, then that's not something that you're going to do. It's a calling. It's a, it's a passion. It's a desire. And um, Charles Jefferson said it this way, it's by no means easy for a young man to become a shepherd, and he ought not be discouraged if he cannot become one in a day or a year. An orator, can, he can be without difficulty. A reformer, he can become at once. In criticism of politics and society, he can do a flourishing business the first Sunday. But a shepherd, he can become only slowly and by patiently traveling the way of the cross. And that's exactly the mindset that I have. And, you know, I don't expect to, you know, uh, on day one, especially as, as, a, as a brand new young pastor, and I know six years in this position, going on seven, I guess, is not all that long to be in that, in that position, but it takes time. 
And it takes, it takes being there. It takes working through people's issues with them. And there is, there is so many things that, that, uh, that come in that I cannot let get out, right? It takes earning that trust the same way that it, that it takes earning a trust in a marriage relationship. One time of breaking that trust is all it takes for, for somebody to never trust you again. And so it's, it, it's a lot of work and a lot of time and a lot of effort to shepherd the flock, but that is the pastor's responsibility. Which brings us then, so first of all, he's to lead the church. Secondly, and there's only two here, is to feed the church. Turn over to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, and I'm going to cover these things pretty quickly because we're, we're running out of time. I don't want to keep you too long tonight, but Acts chapter 20 and verse number 28 says this, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. Honestly, we see both of those ideas. Lead, right, by, by he made you an overseer to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. You're not too far from there, so turn over to John 21, if you will. John 21. And again, this is, this is uh, Jesus speaking here. Um, <clears throat> talking to Peter in particular, but knowing that these, these were the men that were going to become the apostles and, and, and essentially the pastors of the churches that God called them to um, <clears throat> to pastor, but John chapter 21, <clears throat> verse number 15. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He said unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things, thou knowest that I love thee. And Jesus saith unto him, feed my sheep. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, when thou wast young, thou girdest thyself and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands and another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This he spake, signifying by what, death, uh, by what death he should glorify God. And by the way, Peter ended up giving his life and uh, uh, became one of the martyrs. And Peter was set to be crucified in the same way that they crucified Jesus. And this is not in the Bible. This is just what we know from history. And Peter said, I'm not worthy to be crucified in the same way that my Lord was crucified. And he asked them to crucify him upside down. And they did. And that's how Peter died. But that's, that, that is, you know, the whole, the whole point of that is to feed the church. Feed my sheep, he says. Well, how does he feed the, feed the church? Well, number one, and you can turn to as many of these passages as you can. We're going to be in Acts chapter 6. Give himself to the ministry of the word. Now, Acts chapter 6, hopefully you'll recognize, is the passage we talked about last week, which is where the first deacons were called. And in Acts chapter 6, one of the reasons they needed to call the deacons was because they were missing out on taking care of the widows and on some of the ministration of the church. And the reason why was, Acts chapter 6 and verse 4, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. That's how a pastor can feed the sheep. The second way is to hold fast the faithful word. And I'm just taking these directly from the Bible. We see that in Titus chapter 1 and verse number 9. Titus 1 verse 9 says, holding fast 
the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. But hold fast the faithful word. Right? If, if I, if, if, and I'm saying I because obviously I'm the pastor and this is my responsibility, this is, the, this, is the, this is what God's called me to do. But if I waffle on everything and, well, you know, I know that people don't really like this very much, so let's bend it a little bit and change the word of God a little bit and let's, let's you know, we don't need the harsh words in the, the King James. Let's, let's bend it a little bit and go to one of these other versions and, you know, give it to the people a little bit easier and whatever else. I mean, whatever it happens to be. But that's not holding fast the faithful word. The third thing then to feed the, the church would be to preach the word. That's why I have to spend time studying and, and praying and preparing and preaching sermons. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse number 2. Preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. Boy, if, if, if uh, most people in most churches saw that today, uh, and, and I don't know if, it, I guess it's just not being taught, but oh, you can't say mean things like that. You can't, you can't preach hard anymore, right? Well, that's what the Bible is saying. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, which means be ready always to, to, to preach when need be, but reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. I mean, that, that's, those are harsh words, right? I mean, rebuke somebody, reprove somebody. Well, you, you can't tell me that I'm wrong. You can't tell me this. You can't tell me that. And, and again, I, I mean, I think the second half of that is, is just as important as the first half, but with, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine, right? You ought to be kind in the way that you get it across, but it has to be gotten across, and it has to be done. And those are, those are not the, the fun parts of being a pastor, right? The last thing I want to do is make people mad. The last thing that I want to do is, is have people storming out and mad at me and angry with me and whatever else, but the last thing that I want to do uh, before I hurt your feelings, is to hurt God's feelings and not preach the truth, right? Not preach the word, as the Bible says. Uh, the fourth thing, then, is to do the work of an evangelist. That's not a job that belongs just to me, but it belongs first to me if I'm to lead you in it. Second Timothy chapter 4 and verse number 5, Be thou, it, but, but watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, Make full proof of the ministry. What's the work of an evangelist? Let's get the message of the gospel out, right? An evangelist is a proclaimer, right? Somebody who proclaims the message of the gospel. Uh, and then, and then uh, be a wise counselor. That's the way to feed the church. And that idea is found in the word elder. The word elder means counselor. But let me give you some final thoughts here as we close. Turn, turn back over to 1 Timothy chapter 5. And we're going to get to this in a second. Number one, the qualifications for pastors reflect the immense importance of this ministry. Right? We looked at, ten, at 11 that were in addition to the 10 or so that we looked at last week for the deacons. That's, that's about 20 or 21 qualifications in order to be a pastor. Well, that eliminates so many people. You can't, you know, well, that's, that's the importance of that role. It's not just something that you say, well, you know, I think I'll be a pastor today. You know what? I'm, I'm Bill, done being a painter. I think I'm just going to go be a pastor, right? I mean, that's not, it's, it's, it's there because it's, number one, it's a calling, but there's a lot of requirements that, that are on somebody who, who wants that work. Number two, pastors are the spiritual under-shepherds that God calls to take care of his flock. Charles Jefferson, again, one of the secrets of the fascination of shepherd as a title is that the word carries us straight to Christ himself. It associates us at once with him. 
So far as the New Testament tells us, Jesus never called himself a priest or a preacher or a rector or a clergyman or a bishop or an elder, but he liked to think of himself as a shepherd. I think it's great. Number three, it's a full-time position that's essential to the well-being of every local church. Um, if, if, I don't, if I don't use the majority of my time, and I have other things that I do. I'm a chaplain. I do some of these woodworking things on the side, but everybody that I ever do anything for, whether it be woodworking or whether it be with the chaplaincy or anything else, knows that the church comes first. And if something comes up that requires my attention for something in the church, they know that that's where my first responsibility is. They know they can't call me out on Sundays. They know they can't call me out on Wednesdays. There, there's times when I can't be called out, and I have that very plain for them to see because I, I'm not going to skip Wednesday night because, oh, I got called out as a, as a chaplain, you know. I'm not going to skip visitation on Saturday because I'm working on a wood project and I got to get this thing finished, right? Uh, that is, this is my primary job, my primary responsibility, and I try to take it very seriously. Number four, there's absolutely no warrant in the scripture for the hierarchies that evolved in some denominations or groups of churches. Every local church should have their own pastor, right? Larger churches very well may have more than one pastor on their staff that helps. There should still be one lead pastor, one pastor that oversees everything, but, but uh, a, the larger a church gets, it does become necessary to have assistant pastors, if you will, um, who help in certain areas and certain aspects. But no pastor should control groups of churches or denominations, which you see in a lot of places. But since we as Baptists believe that there are only two offices, don't clutter up the flow charts with you know, trustees, uh, trustee boards and elder boards and committee boards and all of these other things that you see in a lot of these other churches, right? Pastor and deacons, those are, the, those are the two offices that we see that God give us in the church. Um, and then the last thing is this, and, uh, but the scripture makes it clear that pastors should be remunerated wherever possible. 2 Timothy chapter 5, um, verse 17. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn. And the laborer is worthy of his reward. Now, that word honor here can mean respect, but it means wages. And a local church should, should fully appreciate the value of the pastoral ministry by recognizing that. We see a, another lengthy passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that Paul was talking to the church at Corinth. Um, chapter, chapter 9, verse 7 through 14. But um, somebody said this, and I, you know, obviously this is, I'm not saying it because, um, you know, it's uh, talking about the wages of a pastor is always a, a weird topic to talk about because I'm, how much are you going to pay me now for this, right? But somebody said a church that will not adequately support their pastoral staff will not prosper spiritually, and I think that's I think that's uh, I think that's uh, a, a worthy saying. But Second Corinthians chapter nine and verse number six says this: "But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully." And I think that principle works in any aspect of our lives, right? We give to God, he's going to give back to us. Now, we believe in pastors and deacons. We don't, we don't have any deacons yet. It may not be too far off for us, but we, we do have a pastor. And, and I'm not better than any of you. God doesn't love me more than he loves you. I'm not perfect. Uh, I try to be real. I'm not perfect. But I, I do genuinely care for you and for your family and for the church, and for the Lord. And I'm, uh, I'm not perfect, but I, I do take my job seriously. And the day that I stop taking my job seriously is the day that I'll step out of the ministry. Right? It's a very serious job. It's a very serious business. And 
the same way that God does not play with our lives, I should not be playing with the lives of the people that God's given us here in this church. And when we have deacons, I pray that they'll do the same. But what a, what a tremendous uh, responsibility. And not that other churches don't have only pastors and deacons, uh, but a lot of churches add a lot of, a lot of uh, offices that, that we just don't find in the Bible, right? And that's one of the things that makes Baptist distinct. Not that we're the only church that does Baptist, I mean, that does uh, pastors and deacons, but that is one of the things that does set us apart with all of these other things, is that we believe in two offices, and they're the offices of the pastor and the deacon, right? Let's, uh, let's review one more time before we pray and finish up here. So, the Baptist distinctives. We have one more next week, but B is biblical authority. A? P, T, which are? Baptism and Lord's Supper. I, individual soul liberty. S, saved church membership. And the one that we just finished, the T, two offices, which are pastor and deacon. The last one, I'm going to spill the beans. It is separation of church and state. And that's a big distinction. The Baptists were the ones who basically made that happen in the United States. Um, it was a Baptist pastor, and I don't want to get ahead of myself, but it was a Baptist pastor who got that, uh, that the first of the, in the Bill of Rights, that, uh, the, basically the separation of church and state. And we're going to be looking at that next time, next week. All right? Let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we love you. Give me thank you for your word. I thank you for the truths that we find in it. God, I pray that you'd help every one of us to, to fulfill to the greatest of our ability the role that you've given to, to us in this church. And God, I pray that we'd, we'd be doing everything we can to get the message of the gospel out, to get lost sinners in, and to disciple them, those, those that get saved, disciple them to see them grow and, and mature in their Christian faith. And God, I pray that you would uh, just... Continue to help us as we try to reach this area for you. I pray that you'd send a revival here to our church, God, that it, that it, would, it would spark something so great that, that we can't help, but people can't help but notice that there's something going on here and want what we have. That's the desire. And so, God, I pray that you would just be with those who are uh, still sick. I know that most people are finishing up with that, and we're thankful for that, but I pray that you just help them to get well and be able to be back here for church on Sunday. Thank you for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen.